Good morning, Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And uh, before we get, in, I get into my sermon this morning, um, you know, the Bible tells us in Matthew that Jesus looked upon the crowds and he had compassion on them. And it says because he recognized that they had no shepherd and that they were oppressed. God was moved by oppression. I'm not going to take a long time to do a commentary on some of the things going on in this nation. But there are some images that have taken place and been given to us by the media. One of those images is this. If you don't know what this means now, search the web and find out. And I want you, here, here, here's a help, Ferguson, Missouri. Why? Because part of the gospel is that we not only commit sins, but we're victims of sin. And as those who believe in the gospel of grace offered to them, we are called to have compassion on the oppressed. It's interesting to me as Jesus looked upon the crowd with compassion. These were people who not only he had compassion because they were an oppressed people, a victim of much violence, a victim, victims left to live in poverty. But he looked upon this crowd as people whom he would have to die for because they were sinners too. I urge you not to allow your judgment of people being sinners too to stop you from being moved and hurt by the oppression that goes on in this country. If that was the case, the Lord would not die for you or would not have died for you if it was only based on the fact that, you know, you were sinners. Jesus died for you because you were oppressed, because someone took advantage of you. And some people are still taking advantage of you. That somewhere in your life, unless God's grace has allowed you not to see it or notice it, somewhere in each one of our lives, we have looked down the barrel of a gun and been fired on in a way we should not have. That is the gospel truth. And just like your Lord, it is okay and right to be acquainted with grief. And sometimes it's just grievous. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right because we don't have all the answers. And it's not all black and white. I urge you to go there 
and trust God to lead you believers to pray for what's going on and to weep for what's going on. And get this, to live in a place where it's hard to make sense of all that's gone on. So that you can turn to your God and pray and trust him. All right. Kind of feeds into our sermon this morning. This is going to be a frustrating one. I promise you, this is going to be frustrating. I promise you that there will be a lot of questions of how, we, how shall we then live that comes out of this sermon and that comes out of this passage. I want you to put the people and characters in right perspective before we begin to look at this. Egypt, in the minds of Israelites who would look back at this passage, are the oppressors of them. They are the slave owners or the once slave owners of people who look back at this passage. So the Bible tells us as we follow this story of Joseph and have that in mind, that Joseph becomes the top servant as he's sold to an Egyptian person, Egyptian captain. He becomes the top servant to that master, but then is lied on by his boss's wife and is sent to prison. The king of Egypt has a series of dreams that no one can interpret. It's discovered that Joseph has the God-given gift of dream interpretation. And it is Joseph's right interpretation of this dream that saves Egypt from a coming seven-year famine, but which ends up not only keeping Egypt afloat, right, but it makes Egypt rich in a time of poverty. Joseph becomes second only to Pharaoh himself in power and authority. But before we celebrate the native Hebrew son making it big in the city as the CFO of a world empire, we have to worry that Joseph was selling out or that somehow along the way he would lose his faith. Understand, Egypt was the world power of the day. Their gods, their culture, and their sheer power surpass everyone's. How wouldn't he and his one unknown God be lost in it all? How would and did he and his faith in God survive being Egyptianized? We must honestly ask ourselves similar questions. In a world that presents as bigger than you and your faith, how will you and your saving relationship with God survive it? How will you stay faithful and true in this world? As we can see from the story of Joseph, the good news against all the bad news is this. You and I in Christ will survive it. God has called his people to live in and survive in and be a part of a world that is filled with commercialization and commendation and cruelty that in large part stands against what it means to be a believer. The Bible tells us in verse 24 that 
Joseph, when he is called up by Pharaoh, the Bible says in verse 24 that he shaved himself. And then he put on some different clothes to be presented and presentable before Pharaoh. And then in verse 42, the Bible says that once he gets on top of his game and Pharaoh sees how important he is, that he gets the Egyptian equivalent of the Armani suit, right? Or in our world, the khaki pants and dress shirt with the penny loafers, or the white lab coat, the black, car, the black card, or on the hip swipe card, right? A, a company car, and then on top of this, he gets the trophy wife in verse 45, all of which would have said he was completely acceptable, corporate, honorable, fit, right, Egyptianized, and fit the commercial model of Egyptian culture and leadership. This Jew who came from a people where shaving yourself could be a sign of rebellion or selling out, that having gold anywhere on your body could mean idol worship, whose law said don't marry foreign women, whose signet ring probably had the mark of the beast of some sort on it, you know, was he was assimilated, right? He became Egyptian. This Hebrew climbed the ladder to be Egyptianized. He looked like and dressed like and fit in and like an Egyptian aristocrat. And it was God who put him in that place. What did we do with this? I was talking with this, talking to this, talking about this this week with some of the staff and Charles, you know, he just, he's still in seminary, so, you know, he's kind of still sharp, right? Sometimes an old man needs to listen to the seminarians, but mainly, you know, he needs to listen to me, but anyway. But Charles remind me that these narratives in Scripture are descriptive but not prescriptive, right? So it is not saying be like Joseph, sell out, try to be commercialized, right? To be shaped into the image and likeness of this world's view of humanness. But it is saying look at Joseph because he is an apt description of the dilemma of the world's desire to shape us and make us into its commercial image. And it's saying that we are all touched and caught up in just by being in this world system. God has called and place us in a world and popular culture and businesses and jobs that has a shared and marketed image of what it means to be acceptable and excellent. It tells us what it looks like and means to be healthy and what beauty looks like, and it puts, on, puts a cost and a poundage or decimal point on it. And we have to sometimes in our force and coerce to put on to be acceptable in this world, right? Paying and giving in and being swallowed up by the price tag and picture of acceptance. Now, this sermon is not about how to break away from that stuff, this stuff. I want to go there too. It is bringing light again to the fact that God has called us to be in a world where we have all been and will be shaped by the commercialization of this world and the commercialization of our God-given humanity. That we have been suppressed and even oppressed to fit into what can and be used and what will be used and accepted by the world we live in, right? I mean, look at what you have on. Or look at what you want to have on. <laughs> Look 
at your, what your kids have on and what you would like for them to have on and what it has cost you. Look at what you drive or hope you were driving. Look at where you live and where you want to live and how hard you have to work to live where you should live, right? You work, you, you work hard so your kids don't, be, don't get teased at school and possibly get into a good school, right? So they can get into a good school, right? So they can get into a good school and then maybe get into a good school again. So they can get into some good debt to get into a good job and get into the good life to eventually pay for those good schools and that good life. This is the world God has put you in. And I mean, look at what it takes to maintain your higher ability, right? And what, what, what it takes to be the commercialized good wife or providing husband based on what group or image has a stronghold on you and your area or your employments or social life. Like Joseph, it even goes to making sure you marry the right husband and wife that will fully in integrate and ingratiate you to this world and your calling you have in this world. You know, 20 years later and three kids later, then you worry about love, right? That's what happens in this world. We have to do right and by the world with our career choices not to stay in the pits of society or stay out of the pit or to never go back to the pit or never get into a pit. And again, this sermon is not about what or whether it is wrong or right to wear or not or whether to buy this or not or whether to live there or not or whether to work for this company or not. But I want you to recognize where God has called you in the sheer dilemma you're in. And here's where the American dream really becomes the American vision of how you and I see ourselves fitting or not fitting into the social, cultural, and economic landscape according to what we can do to fit in. Or get this, work real hard not to be the people that fit in. But you're only trying to be the people who don't fit in because guess what? Everything is already geared and driven by some kind of world control or a world image who is, who is in charge socially, economically, and culturally of the status quo. Welcome to your world. Welcome to you in your world. Dressed up, fixed up, cleaned up, know how to talk right, know how to walk right, looking at the trends, making sure you fit in. And because of the big elephant in the world, in Joseph's case, Egyptian rule, it changes and shapes how we feel about ourselves, to ourselves even, right? When we look in the mirror, where did you get those thoughts about yourself as you look at and think about yourself? Why did Joseph, the Bible say he shaved himself? Because Joseph knew what it meant to be presentable before Pharaoh, get this, according to Egyptian culture. And many, if not all of us, live out a presentation. We have a world mask that is less or more than we really are, forced to live what is not true about ourselves in this world or less than true or not everything. And you know why that is? Because we are called to live in a world that we don't rule and run in an everyday way. Okay? But it gets harder, right? Because God has called us to live in a world that will try to steal and own your faith. 
Okay, get this. It is important to understand that Egyptian spiritual culture was not much different than ours with the exception that it did not have an idealistic redacted dream history about the leaders of the original colonists being the equivalent of evangelical Christians like a bunch of wig-wearing, blouse-bearing 18th century Billy Grahams. No. They didn't have that founding religious perspective. On their country's history, they had, I can't even say the word, ta Ra, Shu, Geb, Osiris, Horus, Thoth, Set, and Maat, right? Those were their founding fathers, which were their gods. These were the gods, and they were responsible in giving each in this category sun and moon and air and death to all Egyptian experiences and prosperity and hopes. These were gods, like any polytheistic society, that fit into and made sense of their gross national product. These gods sat on the Egyptian divine stock exchange, and so Joseph comes with the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams and gives credit to Yahweh. He says, your God's revealed this to you. He gives credit to the monotheistic one God, those silly Hebrews, so undeveloped with their one God of Israel stuff. I mean, look at what happens in verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then in verse 28, it says this, It is as I told you, Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then in verse 32, it says, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by who? God, right? And God will shortly bring it about. Pharaoh says this about Joseph, who gives him the wisdom, obviously he said, from God of how to save during the famine. Look what happens in verse 37. This proposal, the proposal given to Joseph by the wisdom of God, pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? Who? In whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as, you're, as, you, as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed them in garments of, the lint, of, of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called up before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over the whole land of Egypt. And the Bible goes on to tell us that Pharaoh gets so excited about Joseph's faith in God and the way God uses Joseph that he changes his God-given Hebrew name to an Egyptian name and then marries him to the daughter of an Egyptian pagan priest. As we and the Israelites read this story, it's clear Pharaoh don't get it. He just dressed up. Now, now hear me carefully now. He just dressed up, not just Joseph in official Egyptian garb, but Joseph's God, right? The God of the Bible, too. Understand that by recognizing Joseph the way he did, he was honoring that Joseph was, at the very least, the earthly representative of the Hebrew God and the Hebrew God's power. If Pharaoh was the incarnation of the sun god Ra, following Egyptian hermeneutics and theological interpretation, 
Joseph, at the very least, was a channeling agent of the God of the Hebrews, but maybe the incarnation of the Hebrew God. And to make not only Joseph happy, but the God of Joseph happy, Pharaoh honors God. But why? Hear hear me now. Because the Hebrew God was a commercial and political benefit to Pharaoh and Egypt. It is safe to say, that the Hebrew God was himself Egyptianized by Pharaoh. Yeah, the God of this Bible was Egyptianized by Pharaoh. He was worked into the pagan system. He was put into place, into his place according to the Egyptian culture and world. He was called upon and used just like the other gods. Pharaoh had no problem saying, yeah, look what God has shown you. Look what Yahweh has given you. Woo-hoo, he's a good God like the rest. He liked what God did. He liked the God of of the Hebrews. It made him rich. Though Pharaoh did that, know he could only be played by the God of the Bible and never cast and direct the God of the Bible, it appears that Hebrew faith and power and its God became a commodity and precious spiritual resource of knowledge and leadership under Egyptian rule. Okay, guys, we're getting somewhere. Just give me some time. I don't have to say too much about this to you Southerners or to you who moved here to the South because we more than anybody should recognize how our faith, your faith, the God of the Bible, Jesus has been bought, sold, defined, used over and over in this world. And the people of God have contributed contributed what is a gifted by God, holy character, honest work, good family values that is now used by the world instead by someone who is not godly. That means God's unseen work and his resonant and resultant power is like in a ghetto when you don't really have electricity, but you run the power cord from somebody else's house. Where me and Kelly used to live, there were cords everywhere. Someone told me the lady across the street, remember Elizabeth, how she got cable. I never seen a Time Warner guy at her house. He's at my house. He at Elizabeth's house but not at her house, right? But this is the world, the way the world works. God has built and created and paid for things and the world pipes in to its power to light its commercial sign. And it's crazy that yes, our society has been Christianized. Family values, that thing for sale, that ain't Christian no more only. A godly man, a godly woman. Man, that's really small g sometimes, right? We've Christianized society. But guess what? Our Christianity has been socialized too. And it's crazy how the right and left politically pimp Christians and their biblical convictions and issues all the time. We conservative Bible believers are commodities in the voting numbers who can inadvertently offer our God as one of the gods that somehow looks like he supports and upholds right-wing political ideology. How dare you think our God supports, like, is on the board of your political ideology? It don't work like that, but that's how the world makes you feel. Let's just buy 
this part from Christianity. You know what? We don't support this, but we support this. Woohoo! We got the Christians. The world wants to own us and our God for its own purposes. I was talking with one of you a couple weeks ago, and this, this is a hard one, so just bear up. I know I get a lot of emails about this. Just forget it. I'm not going to respond. I'm tired. I'm tired, y'all. I'm sorry. I'm a pastor. Go ahead. I'll have to respond. And I'll be nice, too. Not what you're getting right now. I was talking with one of you a couple weeks ago, and I was told and, and that this person along with somebody else is really keyed into women's issues worldwide and the amount of abuse and rape that's going on worldwide with women. And they told me that as they began to be a part of what was happening, that one of the best organizations, best for women's civil rights and fighting for those rights is now the National Organization of Women. Uh-oh, did that PCA pastor just say now? Yes, I did. Here, I went on the website. This is what they say. Now is a multi-issue, multi-strategy organization that takes a holistic approach to women's rights. That's good stuff. As a church, shouldn't we? Right? Okay, okay, okay. Let, let me move on. They said our official priorities are winning economic equality and securing it with an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that will guarantee equal rights for women. I like it. Championing abortion rights. I'm not going to say nothing. I just heard some grunts. Reproductive freedom and other women's health issues. I'm all for women's health issues, right? Opposing racism and fighting bigotry against lesbians and gays and ending violence against women. What's wrong with that? We not against bigotry? We not against racism? I'm going to be so bold to say this. Organizations like this on the left and organizations equally on the right have taken what is God's and fueled its purposes, which means sometimes, just like for e what Egypt did, it helps the world. Do you know what it meant for Egypt to save grain? It helped the world. But understand who helped the world? Egypt! One of the most evil pagan countries you could ever know. They help feed the world. See, believers, it is so difficult when you look at things and you see organizations and you see how th there is a, a cherry picking of things that God has ordained, that God has created, that God has put in this world and their organization is created around it and then you kind of have to be with it. Now, this is an extreme example. Now was an extreme example. And I'm not re recommending or condemning working with now in certain situations, but most of you work in slaves somewhere, 
right? And for someone, and bring your best and do your best work for someone or something whose core and end mission ideologies weave in and out of what is godly and not godly. And you have put in these companies and organizations, I believe, rather you have been put in these companies and organizations, I believe, some of you, by God. We learned what the core mission and ideologies were some of the financial systems, didn't we, back in 2008, didn't we? If you don't have a golden parachute, too bad. There's only a few parachutes for a few people. If you were living on the bubble pop, right? The, the ideologies all came out. It's about getting rich. It's about being in control. It's about having power, right? That, that's what it turned out to be. But every day, especially in this city, swipe, we go and work. I know the frustration, though. When I bring up stuff like this, it brings frustration, right? Like, oh, man, I'm going to work for the man. I'm going to work for the beast. Put the 666 on me now, right? You start to have those thoughts. What's on that card? Whoop, 666. I mean, you know, we can could, we could make a movie out of this. They're scanning your eyes and all that stuff. Man, let me tell you, right? You get, you get that feeling. And you, like Joseph, have a living and sincere faith in God. If we ask you, I'm here for God. I work for the glory of God. Oh, really? You mean all the work, all the gifts God gave you, all the stuff he gave you is helping the people on the top floor? Do you know what they're doing on that top floor? Do you know what they're thinking on that top floor? Do you know what their worldview is? They look over the whole city from that big window is? And you working for the man? Where's your Christianity? Where is your God? Where is he? Right? Here's the frustration. And God, you know, and, 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 and if that's not bad enough, the world rewards and commends believers and even their churches and exercise of faith when it fits into the big picture. Look with me at verse 40 and 46 again. So Joseph does right for this big Egyptian company, if you will. You shall be over my house, and all of my people, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed them, in, clothed them sorry, in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called up before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. The Bible says when anything, anybody needed an issue, go to Joseph. He is in charge. Let me start here. Joseph and his God made big money and kept Egypt its king. And get this, it's very God's afloat. You know, in this Egyptian culture, it's like soap opera gods, right? So if something went wrong, They'd be like, oh, man, the God of wheat, he messed up. We're not going to worship him no more, right? It, it, it was he, the, the fact that things were going well because of Joseph's work was keeping the very God system afloat. So he gets rewarded on a worldly scale for it. He gets the money. He gets the cars. He gets the power. He gets the aristocratic celebrity life. And for those who seeing Joseph as their MLK Jr., it all spells trouble for him and their faith. As soon as you start taking the man money, that gold chain is a chain, all right. Right? 
God has called us into a world that rewards and commends us with wealth, power, luxury, and to a place where we pursue, pursue success and prosperity in a capitalistic American dream society using the gifts God has given us. Man, it can get so easy. To, it can be so easy to confuse between what is God's blessing and the world's commendation for being a good kind of moderate but super productive, posh-producing kind of Christians. Will and how do we, but the faith we claim, survive and thrive and be fruitful through that? You know what, y'all? That's paralyzed so many of us. We are condemned for not being enough and doing enough and escaping the system enough. Some of us feel guilty going to work and wondering every day whether our faith really is on fire or doused and damp with apathy because it will leave us never faithful and content but always questioning whether we are good enough or if we are too rich or why we don't have enough or if we're too rich, what, you know, have we given enough to God or why we don't have enough and what image we need to shape our God in to finally make him work for us in, in this world because Christians are prosperous. We just don't have the right Christianity for this world so we have to change it or if our God and what he's given us to present him and live for him in this world is actually good enough and, and getting caught living like that is death to the joy of your faith. If we don't deal with those questions in the context of the right story, look with me at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. <laughs> That's what a line, right? Okay, let's just call the priest of On like some kind of pagan Satanist sort of thing, okay? So these are born to the daughter of that man, okay? Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph names his sons born to his Egyptian, most likely raw worshiping wife, these good, strong Hebrew names, and it describes his story as being one of hardship and rejection and affliction, but one that somehow God has overcome through. Like Joseph, you and I, in a world with his commercializations and his commendations, we live in a world that is cruel with both friendly fire and foreign fire to us in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Joseph, in large part, became Egyptian because his family rejected him. And now in a foreign place, his God is being taken. He survived commendation condemnation. His faith survived luxury and acceptance into the pantheon of the gods. His trust and faith in God did not let go. God did not let his heart go when he was shaved or when he was used and abused by Pharaoh. And God himself ridiculed and put among many gods. And when Joseph was married into a priestly family, God did not let him and the promises and purposes that he promised would come through him, God did not let it go because he was called by God to an above and beyond this world purpose. 
And for those Israelites who, who read this passage and heard this story, told to them either while they were in slavery or owned by Babylon or Persia, the message was clear. If he held Joseph, if God rose and survived the flames and his man Joseph with him, all up in the lap of luxury and the lack of godliness in Egypt, survived as their redeemer, they would too regardless of how much of their heritage had been shaved off or used or abused or questioned. The Heidelberg Catechism that you read from this morning, written hundreds of years ago to encourage believers in the faith, asked and then answered this question like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in this world as you go to work, as you watch TV, as all kind of entertainment filter into your life, as you wonder whether you're right for God or wrong for God? Like, what's going on? What is your only comfort in life or death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ that he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. It goes on to say he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is your comfort in this confusing world that you belong to Jesus? If you don't belong to Jesus, it is nothing but confusion and mess. You don't know why you live and you don't know what's going on. And sometimes, let me tell you, as a, fellow, as a believer in this world, let me tell you, if you don't believe in Jesus, unbeliever, believer to unbeliever, let me tell you, it gets confusing for us too. It's mixed up. When I go buy something, I'm like, oh, Lord. When I go turn on to watch something, oh, Lord. Is my faith going to survive? Am I doing enough? It's not about me doing enough. It's not about the world's power over me, all over this world, all the viruses in this world, all over the place. It's about the fact that Jesus is my comfort in life and death, and he's got this world, and so he's got me. In other words, believers of Jesus, if you were to, and those who would turn your life to Jesus today, you, your faith, and your trust in God will survive it. And so Jesus, Joseph, the Bible says, praise and recognize God for it. At different places, he was careful to acknowledge the Lord at, at this point with his kids. And each point, right, he said, it was God, it's not me, it's God and not me. And you know what he was doing? He was preaching the gospel to himself in tight situations. When the story seems bigger than yours, when the narrative seems to take you over, when the narrative of this world seems to dull your own, I want you to repeat to yourself the very narrative of the gospel. Yes, world, you say this, but I say this because this is what God has said to me. The Lord Jesus Christ is triumphant and preeminent over all things, 
And as he is, so am I. As he is preeminent and powerful and Lord of all things, he holds me in the palm of his hand. And as we just read, not one hair can fall from my head. That is the gospel story. And you need to tell yourself that and hear that and submit to that and pray that as you go. What is your story? That Jesus, our Joseph, too, was shaved of his visible divinity and took on our humanity. And many had plans for him for, and accepted him, and many of his own rejected him. He married himself to sinners, joining himself to humanity's pagan family and died for it and rose again. And like Joseph, gave birth and rebirth to you and me. We are the Manassas. We are the Ephraims. And now our names as we are born and reborn in this world by the gospel and renewed by the gospel, our lives say, guess what? God came in this world and he overcame it. That's what it means to be born again. That is your name. You are the result of a victorious Lord who came in this world and let it own him and put him on a cross and tag a name over his head and put a thorn of a, a crown of thorns on his head. And now when he rose from the grave, you rise with him. You are Ephraim. You are Manassas. You are the result of Jesus making it easy for us to turn to him because God has made you to forget all your hardship. And when I say forget, to be able to not let it rule you and even be fruitful in your faith in a land of affliction. This is your story. You if Jesus survived it, he survived it for you, and you will survive it too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there are principalities, there are powers. There are